Find, please, Luke 8 and John 20. Luke 8, we'll begin at the first verse, and then John 20, we'll pick up where the ladies left off a moment ago. We'll begin at verse 11 in John 20. Luke 8 and John 20. Companies that, um, that sell things to the public like to have spokespersons. Often famous people, celebrities who seem likable and trustworthy and who lend that likability and trustworthiness to the products they are pitching. But every once in a while, a spokesperson will get canned, will get fired because something came up from their past. Uh, you might remember stories about uh, Paula Dean and Lance Armstrong and Tiger Woods. You know, they were pitching various products and then stories emerged, something they'd said or done in the past and, and it kind of tainted their reputation and so the, the companies were afraid that their tainted reputation would rub off on their products and so they fired their spokespersons. Well, God seems not to have been so concerned about the, the past of his spokespersons. The key figure in the Easter story, other than Jesus, of course, is Mary Magdalene, a lady who had quite a checkered past. Luke 8, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, or Magdalene, meaning Mary of Magdala, a village near the Sea of Galilee, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and his twelve, out of their own means. Now, Luke uh, chapter, or excuse me, John 20, beginning at verse 11. John 20, 11. Now, Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, that he had said these things to her. Jesus declared it is finished, hung his head, and died. 
And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea quickly took the mangled body of Jesus from the cross, got permission from Pilate to bury Jesus, his body, in Joseph's tomb. They wrapped his body. They, they did all they had time to do for the sun was headed down and Sabbath would begin soon. And so they hurriedly placed the body of Jesus in the tomb. If you had been there looking, you'd have seen those two men, of course. You also would have seen two ladies in the shadows, perhaps. Two ladies who had not been involved in the, the action, but two ladies just hanging out. Two ladies who just couldn't leave. One is, is named the other Mary. Uh, the second is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene or Mary Magdalene is one of the most intriguing figures in all of Scripture. So intriguing that lots of stories are told about her that are outside Scripture. In Dan Brown's famous novel, The Da Vinci Code, Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married and had, chil had children. In the last temptation of Christ, Jesus is uh, physically tempted by Mary Magdalene. In Jesus Christ, superstar, Mary Magdalene falls romantically in love with Jesus and sings that song, I don't know how to love him. Now those are fictitious stories, of course, but they arise from time to time because Mary is such an intriguing figure. Some believe she was the prostitute in Luke 7. Jesus had been invited to the home of religious leaders, and, um, and a, a young lady came uninvited and unannounced, washed Jesus' feet with the combination of her tears and perfume, and then dried his feet with her hair. And when her rather haughty, holier-than-thou host looked down his nose at her, and indicated that her, act, her actions were inappropriate, Jesus simply said, those who are forgiven much, love much. We don't know that that was her, that's pure speculation. We meet Mary Magdalene for sure in Luke chapter 8 in those three verses that we just read. We find that she was part of a, a band of ladies, a, a circle, if you will, a group of ladies who helped support Jesus and the Twelve financially. I find that really interesting. There are lots of people today who support big-name TV preachers and Christian personalities, and those big preachers and personalities drive Bentleys, and they fly their private jets and live in mansions that are befitting movie stars. That was not the case with Jesus. Sometimes he barely had a place to lay his head. But there was always food around the campfire because of these women who out of their own means, Luke said, supported Jesus and the Twelve. More importantly in Luke 8, we see that, that Mary Magdalene once was haunted by seven demons. And Jesus had cast out of her seven demons. Now, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about the demons and what they mean. I do believe in the demonic and that Jesus encountered real, live, genuine, bona fide demons from hell itself. I also know that in the first century mindset, people attributed things like mental illness and epilepsy to demons. And I don't know what, maybe it was one of the kinds of demons that, that haunts so many of us. 
the demons of shame and addiction and the depression. Or maybe it was a combination of them all. What we do know is that Mary was a hot mess when Jesus met her. And when he was finished with her, she was healed, she was cured, she was changed, she was transformed, and part of that band that helped support Jesus and the Twelve financially. Fast forward a couple of years from Luke 8 to John 20, and we find that Mary Magdalene is part of that group of ladies who left in the cool of a Sunday morning headed to the garden where they had laid Jesus in the tomb. On the way, the very ground trembled. They wouldn't have known then what it was. But when they got there, what they found was rather odd. The tomb wasn't tombing anymore. The seal wasn't sealing anymore. The guards weren't guarding anymore. And the dead wasn't dead anymore, but they didn't yet know that. They didn't know if perhaps someone had stolen his body. At this point in the story, things happen so quickly, the details get kind of fuzzy. But we know that, that after several people had come and gone from the empty tomb, there, there remained one person, Mary Magdalene. She was hurt, she was angry, she was confused. She felt the presence of another person, thought it was the gardener looked at Jesus, and didn't recognize him. Now, I've always found that to be really, I don't know, odd. But then I read a story not long ago from a man named Taylor Field, who's pastor of Graffiti Church, a church we help support in New York City. It was nearly Christmas Day, and it had been a long day, and it had been raining ice all day. And there was a long line outside the church of street people to be fed. The other ministers had gone. He and just a few uh, volunteers were left to give sandwiches to all these people. And some of the people in the line were trying to break in front of other people in the line. And he was trying to police that. And he was tired and he was irritable. And the guy in front, the very first person in the line, had his cap pulled down nearly to his eyes. And he said to the man, step over here, sir, a bit gruffly. But the, and the man complied. Taylor Field said he looked at the man, but he didn't really see the man. And then a little while later, he looked over and he thought he maybe recognized his chin. And he got down and he looked up under the cap. And it was his best friend from seminary, college and seminary. They had spent all kinds of time together, started ministries together. He had looked at him, but he, he didn't really see him. So maybe that's what happened to Mary, confused, angry, hurt, frightened, off kilter. She, she looked at him and didn't see him, which, by the way, makes me wonder how many times I have looked at people and not really seen them. But I digress. He spoke one word to her, beautiful part of the story. He simply said, Mary. And she turned, and, and it was Jesus. And when she recognized that it was him, she, she grabbed him, she embraced him, 
And what he says there is a little bit confusing. It's kind of like, not so tight, Mary, something, something like that. You see, Mary knew what it was like to live with seven demons. Mary knew what it was like to be a hot mess. And Mary knew what it was like to be redeemed. And the one who had redeemed her was standing right there in front of her. And she could not contain her emotion. Mary is the central figure other than Jesus in the Easter story. She's given prominence. She goes from seven demons to center stage of the most important story ever told. And it is not by accident. It is not just a random detail in the story that Mary Magdalene is the key figure. You see, Easter is the story of both resurrection and redemption. Easter is the story of hope, for sure. But it's also the story of transformation. Redemption is God's act of restorative love to make something beautiful of even our worst failures and our most regrettable memories. I want you to hear something. It's a little longer than what I would normally read, but I want you to follow. It's from a lady named Christina. She writes, I would like to edit my childhood, removing the anger, rage, stress, and dysfunction from my family's story. I would like to take away the depression, anxiety, and other mental illness from my immediate and extended family. But I'm not the editor or the author of my life. God is. And God has written me into His story of redemption, where I have joined an assembly of other broken, sinful people. God is in the business of redeeming, and He can even redeem my memories. I can almost hear her say, I'd like to exercise the demons from my past, my dysfunctional family, the anger, the abuse, the depression, the anxiety, and other mental illness. And I love that line. God has written me into his story of redemption, where I have joined an assembly of other broken, sinful people. God wrote Mary Magdalene into his story of redemption. It was like God said, you know, this story of the resurrection is going to get a lot of, of attention. So I'm going to make the central character of the story someone who reminds everybody that this is not just the story of resurrection, but it is the story of redemption, of God's restoring act that, that turns something beautiful, makes something beautiful even out of our, our ugliest sins and our, our most regrettable memories. 
Because Easter is the story of resurrection and redemption, I want to tell you my favorite story. The last time I remember telling it was my first Sunday uh, in this pulpit a long time ago. And it's high time I tell it again. When I get bored telling the story, I'll, I'll quit. But until then, I'm, I'll tell it. It was about 1946, not far from here, on Sand Mountain. A man and woman lived with their son, age 14, and their daughter, age 11. The man of the house had already lived a rough life. He was born in 1911, so he was 18 when the Great Depression broke out, and he he told me a long time after this, that uh, a long time after 1946, he told me that he had fought and partied his way and hoboed his way across the South during the Great Depression. When I met him, he had a gold tooth. He actually had false teeth, but one of the, te- one of the false teeth was gold, and he admitted that the, the original had gotten knocked out uh, in a fight. So here lived on Sand Mountain a man and wife son and daughter. Well, the man went to work uh, at a place called Anniston Army Depot, otherwise known as Bynum. And there at Anniston Army Depot, he met a woman who also was married. And they became involved. She was married. She didn't have children. He had two children, of course, and a wife. Uh, But this man, whose name was J.D., And this woman, whose name was Maud, they ran off together and left their spouses and he, his children. They eventually divorced. She, her husband, he, his wife. I wish there were a prettier word for it, but uh, J.D. abandoned his family. Every once in a while, he'd send a little money back, I heard, uh, to to support his kids, but not much. His son and daughter and wife were devastated. I talked near the end of their lives to that 14-year-old and 11-year-old. When I talked to that 11-year-old girl who now was, was in her 70s, she cried as if it had happened the night before. So, J.D. and Maude got married. They moved to Anniston. And within a couple of years, uh, their marriage was was already in trouble. J.D. had a good heart, but he was rough and rather crude and had a long list of bad habits, including a temper. And then then one day at work at Anniston Army Depot, a man said, J.D., our church is, is doing a tent revival. Now, some of y'all don't know what a tent revival is. But in the old days, um, churches would rent a big circus-like tent, and they'd invite a traveling evangelist, and they'd hold a series of meetings outside. So this church had, um, they had rented a lot in Anniston, uh, an, a vacant lot, and they had rent, rented one of those circus-like tents, and they had, uh, they had invited a, 
traveling evangelist from Tennessee. Now, quite honestly, J.D. was not the kind of guy that a lot of people at First Baptist and First Methodist and First Presbyterians would have invited to church. He wouldn't have fit. But this guy at work courageously said, J.D., we're having this tent revival. Would you, would you want to come? J.D., when he told me the story later, many years later, admitted to me that he had never been to a church except, that, he said, except maybe a funeral or a wedding or two. And I'm quite certain that had the man said, look, would you come with me Sunday morning to, to church? I don't think J.D. would have gone. But, but this was a tent revival. It was outside. It was different. And so he went home and he asked Maud, Maud, this man invited us to this thing called a tent revival. You want to go? Now, Maud had some Christian background. In fact, she would have checked Christian on a, on a Gallup poll. So she knew a little bit more about it than J.D. did, and she said, well, it couldn't hurt, and so they went. And that, that first night they went to the tent revival, the, that pulpit-pounding, Bible-waving, fire-breathing evangelist put the hay down where the cows could get to it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> J.D. only had a sixth-grade education, and he hadn't been to church. But something rang true about what that evangelist was saying. He talked about sin and salvation in ways that even a guy like J.D. could at least sort of grasp. And they went back. And they went back again. And J.D.'s spirit was all in tumult. He, he didn't know what to do. In the middle of the night, one night he went home, he couldn't sleep. Middle of the night, he knows something, this is somehow related to what that guy is saying at the tent revival. He didn't know what to do. He called the only person he knew could help. He called Bartow, his brother-in-law, who was a pastor, lived down in Oxford. So Bartow got up and got dressed, drove up to 200 East 30th Street, to that little 750-square-foot house where Maud and J.D. lived. J.D. explained, man, I've been going to this tent revival. Now I can't rest. Bartow, the pastor, said, by the way, he was a big guy. I remember Bartow. Broad shoulders, big hands. Bartow said, man, you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He talked about what it means to be born again. He talked about what it means to be changed and transformed and, and be forgiven and start over and J.D. knelt, he told me, knelt on the floor of 200 East 30th Street, and through his tears he cried out for God's mercy. God changed him radically. Those who knew him in the succeeding decades, like I did, knew him to be a very different man than the man who had left his family on Sand Mountain. Faithful to his family, faithful to his church, served in all kinds of roles in his church, wore out two Bibles when the preacher preached, he'd, he'd write stuff down. He was always highlighting things, trying to, trying to learn as much as he could because he knew he'd wasted some time and had some catching up to do. That's my favorite story because Bartow, the uncle, with those big broad shoulders and big hands, Bartow, the pastor, was my uncle. My favorite uncle. I, I have so many. He would grab, those hands were big as ham hocks. He'd grab, he'd grab my knee. You know how 
men will, mean as snakes, will grab your knee and make it hurt. I, I love Bartow. And some of you know that uh, J.D. was my father and Maud was my mother. People ask me about my faith journey, my conversion experience. I say, my, my conversion experience happened eight or ten years before I was born. Because I know God can do anything, but I, I don't know where I'd be, and I don't know what I'd be. And as my cousin once said to me, Travis, I don't know if you'd be. If, if a church had not said, let's do something different. Let's do a tent revival. I wish you could have known my parents. My dad was not a father. He was my daddy, a great daddy. He loved me, and he loved my mother, and he loved his church. And my mother was a saint. Ask Carrie. I wish you could have known them. I don't think I would have liked him pre-tent revival. But I sure did love him post-tent revival. And that story is why I love what we call TV church. It's a 30-minute program we do on Sunday mornings for people who don't understand maybe church culture. It's one reason I love these cameras and that we do this broadcast. It's one reason I love our fresh expressions of church, those new forms of church among people in recovery, among artists at Low Mill, among people at Butler Terrace, and soon at Merrimack, among, among families who have family members with special needs. Every week, I hope and pray that a, a fresh expression or, a, or TV church or the broadcast will be for someone what that tent revival was for my father. And that story is one reason my favorite word is grace. Unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love. And it's why I don't ever want to give up on anybody. Easter's, it's, it's the story of resurrection. But it's also the story of Redemption. Now, redemption doesn't mean that, that everything gets wiped clean and everything's hunky-dory. My mom and dad lived with the weight of regret until they got to heaven and God wiped away every tear from their eyes. And my dad tried the rest of his life to rectify that terrible decision he'd made with his kids. But they, they lived a wonderful life and blessed a lot of people and and Easter's, Easter's the story not just of resurrection, but of redemption. And there's, a, there's a young man I love more than life itself, to whom I've said a dozen times, your story will have a tragic ending, or it will have a beautiful ending. It's your call, and it's your call.
Because Easter is not just about resurrection. It's about real, live, genuine, bona fide redemption. Our hymn 